Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's the 7th of May. I'm Robert Bowick, and today I'm joined by Citizens Party founder and leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. In this week's Citizens Report, extracting truth from power and who laid Australia's debt trap. Craig, before we begin, though, I just want to give an update on the war on cash briefly, which is a battle we've been fighting to try and keep cash alive in the economy. Um, a few weeks ago now, I interviewed Paul Thomas of Commander Security, a West, uh, who was debanked by Westpac as part of Westpac's war on cash. There's an update where now Westpac has announced that it will end these um, cash deposit bags that small businesses use, where they can just put their cash in the bag with whatever paperwork, I suppose, throw it in the, give it to someone like Paul to transport to the bank or, or put it at the, take it to the bank. Um, and it's all taken care of, it's all processed. Westpac's scrapping that as of the 30th of September. And when, they've, when their small business customers have asked them why, what, what can they do instead of using those bags, Westpac's number one answer is go cashless. Um, and for a lot of small businesses, this is actually not an option. Like one was a school, and the kids come in and they do fundraising and with cash, etc. If we, if we want all our little kids running around with piece, with plastic cards, right, for everything, you know, or, or, or have to have phones to, to do all this stuff, this is bonkers, but this is where it's going. Now, that's bad enough. Um, we can't do much about that, though. What it underscores is the importance of our campaign for an Australia Post Bank, because a post bank would be a public people's bank that can, if the private banks want to go cashless, because they want to trap us all inside them and get, get our data and you know, have all our transactions going through them, and that's their business. The government, a government bank does not have an interest in doing that. It's there to provide a service and cash is an important part of the financial system. It's about and, time, Robbie, that uh, you know, we stop letting the private banks dictate the policy for the country, isn't it? Well, the way to do that is have a public option and that's what a public postal bank will do. And of course, this is why we're interested in the Christine Holgate issue. It's, this was our interest from the beginning. We want Australia Post to become a bank. She wanted Australia Post to become a bank, and it's one of the big reasons she got into trouble. Okay, Craig, that brings us to our first segment, though, Extracting Truth from Power, which is about an update on the Australia Post campaign. Um, what's happened is we had a hearing on Monday, uh, which is the final hearing of the Australia Post Senate inquiry. And I'm going to play a video in a minute, which captures, every, like, we're going to play an eight-minute video, which, which captures pretty much the essence of the whole hearing in this eight-minute video, right? But just, just to explain it first, um, we've, got the, we've had the last hearing. There will now be a, a period of time before the Senate in committee produces a report on the 17th of May. And that'll be their report. Now, whatever, that report may be good or it may be bad for our campaign. It, it really doesn't matter. If it's good, we'll, we'll use it. If it's bad... Um, you've got to understand the Senate can be ignored by the government anyway. Right? It's not binding on the government. Um, and I don't, the only reason I'm foreshadowing it may, it may be bad is because, unfortunately, the mainstream politicians are weak. Right? And that's one of the problems we've run up to. And an example of that um, is uh, the, just the way this whole campaign's played out. We got the public's attention because we went big on subjects like you know, the bank's agenda to... Not make sure Australia Post didn't become a bank. 
And then, the, and then an even bigger one, arguably, was the privatisation agenda. And we reported that, and we exposed that, long before this inquiry started, right? We put out, we put out documentation about it, etc. People were shocked all around the country. People were shocked. They were outraged when they heard about these agendas. That's why they got behind the campaign. The hearings proved what we said. The hearings bore all that out, right? Now everybody in the country knows about the privatisation agenda, except the people that matter are the elected politicians. And you see signs from them where they're too jaded as politicians to be suitably shocked. It's like they, ex they expect the corruption and they accept the corruption, right? And so they look at these revelations that have come out and they get that the public's shocked, but for them it's like, oh, well, you know, not much you can do. It's up to the people, Craig, to say to their politicians, that attitude is unacceptable, right? And so what we've, we've been asking people to do for the last couple of weeks is the weak link here is the National Party. They are in the government. And the reason they're the weak link is they know how important Christine Holgate's management of Australia Post was to their electorates because she saved the regional banking services in their electorates, right? Single-handedly, she stood up to the board and saved those. Um, and, and uh, you know, by doing this deal with the banks that earned, for which she awarded the executives who helped her, Cartier Watches, right? Um, so they know that. They know that better than anybody. What are they going to do about it? Are they going to let a brilliant CEO who did the best possible the job of anyone has ever done at Australia Post, who saved their electorates, get brought down by a petty technicality and then accept it just to cover the Prime Minister's ass? Right? Are they going to do that? Or are they going to stand up for principle and do the right thing? It's up to the public, the viewers of this show, to make them do the right thing. That's what we've always said, Robbie. Look, you get the government you deserve. Yep. Right now, if the viewers of this show decide to get active and say, well, I can do something, I can call up my Member of Parliament, I can let them know what I think, that is incredibly important. It the is. major parties, Robbie, say to the population, no, just, it's all right, let us run the country, let us do... <laughs> what we have to do, you know, we're, we'll leave it in our hands, we're capable of doing this, you don't have to do anything. Well, look at the mess. Yep. Look at the mess in public policy, in banking policy, in trade policy, all the fights that have been initiated by these politicians against China with vested interest groups behind the scenes. This is because the ordinary public that have been screwed by these policies think, oh, we can't do anything. No, well, that's exactly. where the Citizens Party comes in. You know, our motto is citizens taking responsibility because that's the real power. And that's how we got this inquiry in the first place. So we have to continue. We, we put the pressure on and got the inquiry. We have to continue to apply excruciating pressure and escalate it, right? Because we cannot accept an outcome that's defined by the, the, um, the jaded morality of members of parliament. They have to understand, no, there's a time to stand up on principle and this cannot stand. And it's up to the National Party to get a delegation to go into Scott Morrison's office and demand replace the entire board of political hacks that have betrayed her and uh, reinstate her as CEO. And I'll draw an analogy, Craig. I, I put this up on LinkedIn yesterday. Um, there's lots of examples in history. History is littered with great people that have been brought down by petty technicalities, right? Mm. Small-minded people who dragged them down. But there's a good example of one that wasn't, and that was General Ulysses S. Grant in the U.S. Civil War. Lincoln had gone through general after general, and they were all failures. They kept losing wars. They kept losing battles, right? He finally gets this guy, General Grant, and he's winning battles, and he's winning battle after battle after battle. And the, the, the general staff were jealous of him. And so the petty ones among them went to Lincoln 
and complained that General Grant was an excessive drinker. Now, how did Lincoln respond when he got this complaint? Did he say, I am appalled, it is disgraceful, he can go? No. He said, send a case of whatever he's drinking to all my generals. Right? And if Scott Morrison was a, a fraction of the shoelace of a giant, giant like um, Abraham Lincoln, he would have done the same thing. He would have praised the Cartier watches that were awards for saving those regional banking services and the 3,000 licensed post offices. Instead, he, he um, shoved her out the door as fast as he could because he's a small-minded, petty individual and he was colluding with other small-minded, petty individuals like Kimberly Kitching and the Labor Party. And the right. private banking system. Right? And the private bankers. Now, all right, we're going to play a video. I just want to, I just want to introduce it though because we're going to play it after the break. When, uh, what you're going to see in this video is, is Senator Pauline Hanson interviewing or questioning Tony Nutt. Tony Nutt is the real power broker at Australia Post. The significance of this is this. When Scott Morrison said on that day, on the 22nd of October, she can go, he had no authority to enforce it. There are rules how governments interact with their government business enterprises. The board had no authority to enforce it either. She had to agree, and she didn't agree, she wouldn't agree, because one, she knew she'd done nothing wrong, and two, she knew if she accepted standing aside, that would be the end of her time at Australia Post. She didn't agree. All afternoon, she was refusing to agree. At 5.50pm, the chair, Lucio Di Bartolomeo, claims he returned to a board meeting and said, I just got off the phone with Christine, and she has finally agreed. And they put out a statement soon afterwards to that effect. Well, that was a lie. And the proof of that, Christine knows it was like, because she didn't speak to the chair. And there was another witness, Susan Davies, who testified the other day, one of the early days, and she said, I never saw the chair speak to her, right, that whole afternoon. That's crucial as well. So um, uh, she has maintained that position all along. The person she was talking to was Tony Nutt, the real power broker at Australia Post. He's a big wig in politics in Australia. He was John Howard's advisor principal advisor, he was the Federal Director of the Liberal Party, he's now part of what's called Scott Morrison's Star Chamber that picks ministerial staff to make sure they only have the right people working for the ministers. He's a very powerful man. He's the one she was speaking to. And she not only was speaking to Tony Nutt at the time the chair claimed that she told him she would agree to stand aside, she sent Tony Nutt two emails after that indicating she was only agreeing to take two weeks leave Right? He received two emails from her, one at 6.40 saying that, and then they had a 20-minute conversation at 7.40 that night in which she never said anything about agreeing to stand aside either. So after the break, when, we're gonna, when we come back, right, we're going to go to a break now, we're going to immediately play this video. I won't introduce it, I've introduced it now. And I call this Pauline versus the Power Broker. And Pauline Hanson does an excellent job, as does Senator Sarah Hanson-Young, actually the chair, and they get the power broker Tony Nutt to admit the truth about the lie. Um, Mr Nutt, you actually had conversations with Ms Holgate on the 22nd of October. I did, Senator. the whole afternoon. Um, apart from um, the chair, do you know of any other director that actually spoke to her? Uh, my knowledge is only the chair and myself. Right. 
You were having conversations with her on the phone, but also via email, is that correct? Uh, she sent me a couple of emails, that is correct. All right. There's evidence by the chair that at 5.50 he had a conversation with her and that she agreed to stand aside. Is that correct? Uh, that's the evidence of the chair and that's the uh, information you provided to the board. Right. There's also evidence here that she sent an email to you at 6.03 and 6.41 p.m. still stating she is agreeing to take annual leave of two weeks annual leave, that she did nothing wrong, she's not standing aside. If she's still conversing with you, the chair told the board, you, you your board convened again at six o'clock. Yes, that's correct. The chair told the board that she's agreed to stand aside. At what point did you stand up and tell the directors and the board, no, I'm sorry, Miss Holgate is not saying that. She's still sending me emails that she intends to actually take two weeks leave. What point did you tell the board that? So if you're talking about an email at 6.40... No, 6.03 and 6.41, and also there was an email at 5.53pm which she stated to you that she has done nothing wrong, she does intend, she says, I would like to take two weeks annual leave immediately to enable you to understand an investigation. Uh, so she sent an email, um, but at 6.03 she sent you an email, again she sent you an email at 6.41pm. And I'm saying, if the board raised it, because your board meeting finished at 6.20, at what time did you tell the chair and the directors, well, I'm sorry, Miss Holgate is telling me totally different. That is not my understanding. So, Senator, the position of two weeks' leave and a two-line media statement had been sent to me well before the 5.50 discussion, well before the board uh, reconvened. Um, uh, sorry, it just, been... just, just say that again. What happened? So, no, no, so it's very straightforward. So, yep. during the course of our discussions during the day, uh, Ms. Holgate was also having discussions with a lot of external advisers. It would appear from her subsequent submissions that they included a lawyer and a range of other people. And then she's entitled to do that. Let's, um, let's Mr. Nutt. We are running very short oh, on time. Okay. Mr. Nutt, so, I'm sorry. I'm not Senator interested Hansen in... Senator Hanson has asked a, a direct question. I'm not interested in the other... Uh, what she spoke to anyone else. Okay. I'm going directly to you. Yeah. I'm saying that she had these telephone conversations, yeah. she had these emails directly sent to you that she's saying she is not standing down. She wants two weeks leave. You knew that in your conversations with her. At what point did you argue with the board and directors that she has not agreed to stand down? Okay, so the... Or did you, Mr Nutt? No, well, hang on. So I, I, I'm conscious of your time, Senator. I'm not trying to be difficult, so I'll see if I can consultate this. During the course of the day, and up to and including my last discussion with her, prior to the... Uh, board reconvening. Um, her position was that she wanted to take two weeks leave and issue a two-line statement. She had communicated that to me both verbally and in an early email. I think, and I'd need to check, I apologise, Chair, somewhere around 4.54. I'd uh, communicated this to the Chair. I'd had various discussions with her about the adequacy or otherwise of that as a working hypothesis. And uh, sorry, Mr. Nutt, just to be clear, you didn't think that was appropriate? No. So, uh, if, if I'm, I may, uh, answering your question, Senator. Um, so, 
up. It took uh, the departments about seven days to get the Maddox inquiry underway. Okay. Um, so really what was being put was that um, you know, shortly after the inquiry actually got up and running, which it did on the 30th of October, that the CEO would return to work. Mm -hmm. The issue there is in a couple of parts, if I may respectfully well, put this. Let's, 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 I, I, I want to go back to Senator Hanson because she has the call, but I just want to be clear. Yep. You were well and truly aware of Ms Holgate's preference of two weeks leave uh, and a short statement explaining that. Yes, yes. And, and... And did you, no. did you uh, inform your board colleagues yep. Yep. of that? So, and, that that, and that that was her position. So, so there's two things here which is getting a bit confused. So yes, I informed the chair, uh, both during the course of the afternoon, by forwarding the email and by talking to him. It's a fairly straightforward proposition, two weeks leave and, and, and a short mm -hmm. statement. Um, uh, the chair spoke to, and I had a conversation with Christine shortly before <coughs> the chair's, sorry, Ms Holgate, shortly before the chair's discussion with her at 5.50. So everyone knew that bit of information, uh, and the chair has advised uh, both publicly and through the board that she had agreed to uh, stand aside. She says, it's a point of tension, as we said earlier, that she did not agree. Uh, back, to, back to Senator Hanson. Yeah, so, Mr no, no, no. Nutt, please answer my question. No, no. At no. any time on October the 22nd, did Ms Holgate tell you she had agreed to stand aside? If so, when? Yeah, so, Just answer the question, yes no, or no? no. no, no. Did she? So, yeah, hang on, Just respectfully. So, um, I said to Christine in a phone call shortly before she spoke to uh, Lucio that I thought our discussions had gone about as far as they could go, uh, that she needed to speak to the chair because the chair spoke for the board and had been in touch with ministers. She then spoke to the chair within 30 seconds or so uh, by ringing him. That's a matter of record. There's a disagreement between the two of them as to what they discussed or didn't discuss. Now, it is the case that the board then met, the chair advised the board, etc. You're aware of all of that. It is also true that after the board meeting, uh, or uh, certainly in terms of my getting it, because I was in attendance at you know, six o'clock, so I wasn't sitting there reading my emails, uh, but it is true, just to be clear, Senator, that during the course of the evening after the board meeting, uh, that uh, Christine sent me a couple of emails, which were exactly the same uh, uh, emails that she'd sent earlier in the day, which were talking about two weeks and... Um, Correct. She was still saying that. No, so, so her supposedly having this conversation with the chair, saying that she would agree to stand aside, doesn't add up, because why would she still send an email to you at no. 6.41 what? saying that she will take two weeks annual leave? Okay. You have so, not answered my question. Did she actually tell you she would stand aside? Yes or no? Uh, she didn't tell me that. No. She told the and chair you, that. And well, you're well, all... you, are, you believe she told the chair that? Yep. So that was board member Tony Nutt admitting that Christine Holgate at no time told him that she had agreed to stand aside. And the significance, Craig, was when Christine Holgate knew the chair had lied about that, she knew then they were, they were definitely determined to get rid of her. And that's what set in train the process of bullying that saw her offer a resignation 10 days later. That's the nub of the truth right there. That's what's got to come out. And that chair has to be held accountable 
who's going to do it. We have to demand a clean out based on that. All right, let's go to a break. Welcome back to the Citizens Report. Finally, who laid Australia's debt trap? Now, Craig, today's Friday. Yesterday, the breaking news was China has ended this trade dialogue mechanism that we've had for the last um, few years, um, even though it hasn't been used since 2017, but they've announced they're not participating in that anymore. And it's their response to Victoria, or the federal government scrapping Victoria's Belt and Road Memorandum of Understanding. Now, the thing, the thing is, when China ended this, um, uh, because, you know, the Australian commentators said, oh, see, that's, it's just a symbolic thing by China. We hadn't been using it anyway. Well, you could see it that way. Um, on the other hand, so was Victoria's Belt and Road Memorandum of Understanding. It made no material difference to Victoria in actual fact, right? It was the, 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 the hysteria over it that got it scrapped had nothing to do with the actual nature of it. Mm. And we talked about that last week. So, but this is tit for tat. And it's going, in the, it's going in the wrong direction. It's going in a terrible direction. Um, now, our exporters are in even more trouble, right? They're already in really bad trouble. And those poor guys cannot understand the government's relentless China bashing here, right? I mean, they're thinking, where the hell is this coming from? So we have put an article in our latest alert service magazine here, um, which... If you haven't received this before, you can call in and get a free copy of it for, for first-timers. It's called Australia Stuck in U.S. Debt Trap by Melissa Harrison. And she asked, the, we talk about how our trade dependence on China is a, is a vulnerability and can China coerce us because of that trade dependence? Well, China's not the only country we have a certain form of dependence on. We actually have a financial and investment dependence and a arguably much, much bigger one on the United States. And the question is, does that dependence, is that what, is that what leads us into doing this suicidal stuff on the other side, right? That's the problem here. So I just want to go through some, I know you've got some comments to make, but let me just go through some facts and figures first that people should be surprised about. One of the things regular viewers, long-time viewers on the show would have heard me rant and rail about this we had like the one of the things that I've, that's driven me mad is how the tabloid media, especially, has beaten up Chinese investment in Australia, and that's what everyone heard about Chinese are sweeping us in and buying us up, sweeping in and buying us up, etc. Look at the figures, look at the charts. They're a tiny investor. They're smaller than Luxembourg for crying out loud, compared especially compared to the United States. The United States is the biggest investor in Australia. And it's about time, if we care about our sovereignty, we start asking questions about that. What nature? What is the nature of that investment? And that's what's in this article. Um, because when you have foreign investment, there's a certain role for it, especially for countries that you know, need it. I would argue we don't really need it. But um, what a foreign investor is also an absentee landlord. And what absentee landlords do is they repatriate the profits they make from their investment, mm-hmm. right? So... You, it looks good on paper, but there's a lot of wealth being taken out of the country as a result of that investment, right? Um, so the biggest foreign investor by far is the United States at $984 billion, according to the latest figures from 2019. China, by comparison, owns $78 billion in Australia. The United States loves Australia. We are 5% of Asia-Pacific gross domestic product, but we attract 18% of total United States foreign investment. 
Half of that investment goes into Australian shares. Half of the investment, foreign investment in Australian shares is from the United States. 28% of foreign investment in bonds is from the United States. Are we a colony in the United States or something? We, well, that's what we have to ask. We're going to leave it there for Channel 31 viewers. Join us on YouTube. We're going to keep going with YouTube viewers of the Citizens Report now. So that is the question, Craig. Uh, who are we a colony of really, right? But let me talk about the, the other aspects of our relationship with the United States. We have a trade deficit with the United States that is about $30 billion at deficit, which means we lose. That's money taken out of Australia every year by our trade with the United States. By comparison, our trade surplus with China is $72 billion. That's money we make every year from trading with China, money that comes into Australia from trading with China, not that we lose, right? Um, and then the big one, the reason we called this a debt trap, we have banks, our banks have only one trick in town, as we know, which is lend money for houses. And they keep piling up debt on debt on debt in Australia, where we have, we're, you know, we're the first or second highest indebted households in the world, right? From the banks piling debt into the mortgage bubble. That's all they do. Where do the banks get their money to do that? Most of it is from the United States. One quarter of all foreign funding of Australia's banks come from the United States. So in 2019, the United States Studies Centre said this. They were kind of bragging about this. This is at the University of Sydney, United States Studies Centre. They said, quote, it's not a stretch to say Australians' mortgages are brought to them by US capital markets, right? So you think about that debt that we owe to the United States attached to our houses, there's nothing productive about that, right? Yet when a country, like something like Africa, 2% of total African foreign debt is to China, mm. and all that debt is associated with infrastructure, and that's accused of being a debt trap. So if that's a debt trap for them, at 2%, whereas the majority of our debt's the United States, what do you call it here, right? So think about the three things, and I'll get you to comment in a minute, but so what we're on top of the wealth we're losing to the United States through re repatriated profits, interest payments on that debt, um, and the trade deficit, we're putting this wrecking ball through our exporters, the people who actually make us income, by siding with the United States against China. Craig, what are we thinking? Look, it's insanity, Robbie. Look, what are we, why are we vilifying our biggest trading partner? Why, where's this stuff coming from? Why is there now talk of war with China over Taiwan? Or, in fact, if you listen to the various commentators around the world, we're now talking about that nuclear war is an acceptable option yeah. between conflicts. This is an insanity that has to be stopped. But where do you stop it? How do you stop it? This is why I wanted to put on the table, you know, bring forward to a lot of the people on our show shows that makes ridiculous comments about China and so forth because they fundamentally don't understand where China's coming from. Because China, in fact, represents what we call the Westphalian principle. In other words, the win-win solution of Xi Jinping and so forth, the Belt and Road Initiative, they're peace-driving policies. They are. But no, this is the vilification, or why the vilification? Look, look, look at the invested interests that are coming in the United States into Australia. Now, this West Australian principle is very important, Robbie, and it's fully un misunderstood by, not even understood or not even known about by most people. It comes from what was uh, called the Treaty of Westphalia, which was concluded in October, of, uh, October 24, 1648, which ended the Thirty Years' War. This was a war, Robbie, that killed over 8 million Europeans. And it just cycled on and on and Out on. of 78 million for the population. So it was signed and it 
this, this, this killing was you know, sectarian violence, it was religious violence, it was far, far worse than anything we've got today. Now, we're talking about trade sanctions and this and that. We're not talking about a full-blooded killing war where 8 million people got killed. So what was <clears throat> this, this treaty was, was, was designed to deal with something far more uh, you know, yeah. warlike and bellicose than, than anything we're dealing with today. Now, I want to read what Article 2 of the treaty actually said because this then, you have to ask the question is, why don't our leaders operate from that viewpoint and where's China coming from? So listen to what, this ended the, this ended the 30 years war from Article 2. It says, on both sides, all should be forgotten and forgiven. What has from the beginning of the unrest, rest, no matter how or where, from one side or the other, happened in terms of hostility, so that neither because of that, nor for any other reason or pretext, should anyone commit or allow to happen any hostility, unfriendliness, difficulty or obstacle in respect of persons, their status, goods or security itself, or through others, secretly or openly, directly or indirectly, under the pretense of the authority of the law or by, by way of violence within the kingdom or anywhere outside of it, or any other earlier treaties should not stand against this. Instead, the fact that each and every one from one side or the other, both before and during the war, committed insults, violent acts, hostilities, damages and injuries without regard of persons or outcomes should be completely put aside so that everything, whatever, whatever one could demand from another under his name, will be forgotten to eternity. Now, think about the spirit of that. That mm. ended the war. And this actually, this, this principle established the nation state. Well, it, it defined national sovereignty. Yeah. You can't, you can't use those grievances of what was done to you as an excuse to go and invade your neighbour again, right? And that became, the, that, that treaty you just read out became the cornerstone of international law. And that's the point. Where is the discussion of this today amongst our leaders? Well, well funnily enough, the, the foreign ministry spokesman of China said yesterday that the best, when because they, they were criticising all this talk now under Biden that we buy into, of the, oh, we're protecting the rules-based order, which we've said for a long time. No, no, that's the our rules-based order, right? And a country like most of Asia, when these rules were being written, most of Asia was being locked out. And the Chinese said yesterday, the best rules-based order is, and it still hasn't been exceeded, is the UN Charter. And you go back at that UN, the original United Nations Charter in 1946, it is based on what you just read out, that principle yeah. of sovereignty and non-interference in each other's affairs. And ironically, Craig, people in Australia think we're defending our sovereignty by standing up to China. No, China, countries like China and Russia on the world stage are the biggest proponents of sovereignty. We're part of a system that says, no, no, we do reserve the right to invade whoever we like on whatever pretext we like. And that's where this is self-inflicted. Yeah. See, Robbie, I don't want to argue that the, you know, the, the, the various predicates, because everyone wants to pick this apart, but think about the, the, the principle first. This is a principle that was laid down in international law, as you said, and this is the policy of the Citizens' Party when it comes to foreign policy. This is where we start from. Yeah. So that's why we support the Belt and Road with 120 other countries. This is why we support the win-win idea. The advantage of the other is exactly what's being talked about here. 
whereby our mutual benefit is derived from the benefit of providing things for China. There should be a mutual relationship here. Who's stopping that? Well, look at what's taking place with what's, you know, the, the, the interests that are coming in, the, the economic interests coming into Australia to wreck our economy through all of this uh, investment into effectively speculative markets and so forth. Yep. We actually export real products to China. <laughs> that's right. You can't yeah. eat a dollar note. No, that's right. Now, Craig, very good insight. You know, ultimately, do you want a, do you want a world in which we all look and, and um, appreciate the fact that all of us as countries can develop and rise? Or do you want a world where people in the United States, United Kingdom now are saying, they, they, like, like they have for centuries, this, this mindset, this geopolitical mindset, oh, another country getting ahead is at my expense and I have to do what I can to stop that. Right? Balance of power politics, I've got to create sort of diversions here to make sure that country doesn't get ahead of me. Rather than, if, you know, as I've long argued on this show, if America had have spent the four years under Trump building the infrastructure he promised he would, their economy would be so far ahead now, they wouldn't be afraid of China. Mm. Right? Instead, they are letting Wall Street dictate to them every single day. They regard a policy like universal health care as evil socialism, saving people's lives is evil socialism, right? Um, that every other country in the world enjoys a version of. That, 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 it, it's a crazy outlook that they have. Um, and from that standpoint, they see a country that's actually succeeding as a threat. And we, in a historical relationship with the United States, which started off on a very good foundation, but in a very beneficial trade relationship with China, we had a choice, and there was three choices, side with the United States, side with the China, or be independent, as Malcolm Fraser called for, and Craig Isherwood and I used to regularly talk to Malcolm Fraser um, in his final years. Australia should be independent Right? Not side with one or the other, but from an independent standpoint, we would then know what side would benefit us. And we, um, uh, that was our choice. And instead, we've chosen to side with this crazy regime that's, that's taken over the United States at the moment. Probably many, many Australians don't understand what this principle of sovereignty is. We're happy to be autonomous within yeah. the British Crown, British Commonwealth, I should say. Right? That's not the same thing. No. And this is where our policies derive for financial policies that in order to be sovereign, you have to have a sovereign banking system. That means a public bank owned by the people for the benefit of the people as a whole, not the London, London you know, Bank of England-centred financial system that we have today. So these, the, I wanted to put this uh, policy issue on the table because it's so devastatingly important no, now to avoid war. Craig, thanks very much. Your contribution is appreciated. Thanks to the viewer for tuning in. Tune in next week for more of the Citizens Report. Thank you.